Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ira Kassoff. Ira's academic and government career reflects the budding relationship between the United States and China, or perhaps a return of that relationship after decades of war and estrangement. Ira was among the first group of scholars permitted to go to the mainland in 1979, and after finishing his doctorate at Princeton on Song Dynasty intellectual history, Ira had a string of interesting jobs in China before joining the Department of Commerce to help promote U.S. exports. From that position, Ira participated in scores of bilateral commercial and trade dialogues between the two governments aimed at opening up the Chinese market. Perhaps the master of the bilateral dialogue format on the Chinese side was then-Vice Premier Wang Qishan, now Vice President and close confidant of President Xi Jinping. Back in 2008, during a U.S.-China strategic economic dialogue, he injected a moment of levity tinged with Chinese humility. Here he is speaking through an interpreter, courtesy of C-SPAN. My finance minister is, is sitting right down there. I told him just, just cat Hank Paulson. Look at his wallet. He's really got a fat wallet. So look at the, you are also the finance minister of a major country, but there are two different big countries. The U.S. is the real superpower, but you are not. So big countries and superpower, they are not the same concept. There is currently a reassessment of the utility of these once regular U.S.-China diplomatic discussions, which grew to hundreds of officials in scores of meetings throughout the year. In the end, did they accomplish anything? Ira Kasov has a view on that, having been involved since the beginning. But before getting to the fancy official banquets and the skyscrapers of Shanghai, Ira begins our conversation about the grim realities of China in the late 1970s, with monochrome gray uniforms and fistfights in the streets. Ira Kasov, thanks so much for taking time to talk about your long experience working on China. Um, I wanted to just start by asking... Uh, how you got interested in China in the first place and your uh, first visit to China, maybe to work on your dissertation and what what that was like. Uh, Thank you. It's good to see you again. Um, How I first got interested in China is kind of a long story, but I won't subject you to the whole whole history. But when I was an undergraduate, I was kind of switching around from one thing to another. And during my sophomore year at Harvard, I had taken a couple of classes on China, one what they call rice paddies, an introductory course on China, uh, and then one, of course, by uh, Ezra Vogel. And I decided that was pretty interesting. And before my junior year, I needed a new major. So I set up, and in those days, you could set up your own major if you had faculty approval. So I, and the only thing they had at that time in this field was what was called East Asian languages and literature. I wanted to do more history and politics and also that major required three years of language, and I only had two years left. So I set up my own major uh, called uh, East Asian Studies, which had two years of Chinese and politics, history, and so forth. Uh, And I liked it. And uh, so one thing led to another. I decided to continue. I went off to Taiwan and studied uh, intensive Chinese at the Stanford Center in Taiwan. 
while I was there, I applied to graduate school, came back, and uh, entered a PhD program in Princeton. And as I say, kind of just continued to follow along one step at a time. So um, you got your PhD. Oh, and, and you wanted me, sorry, you wanted me to talk about my, yeah, my year just, at Beijing University. Your impressions right? of, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was very lucky. I, was, I, was, um, I got a grant to be part of the first group of students and scholars that were sent to China in 1979 when we reestablished diplomatic relations. Um, and that was quite, quite an amazing experience on many, many levels. I remember actually going across on the train from Hong Kong up into, uh, into Guangdong and just being so excited because before that, we couldn't go to China. I remember earlier, probably about six years before, being in Hong Kong and going up to the border and kind of staring across and imagining what it was like there. Because uh, you had been in Taiwan. so You had been in Taiwan. You had been and, in yeah. the region, but not yes, in, in mainland yeah, China. Exactly. Um, and finally getting to, to go into China and going through the first train station, first big train station, which I guess was Guangzhou, uh, and seeing the, 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 these young women with uniforms standing there very erect and everything was very neat and very orderly. And I thought, boy, this is pretty exciting. Um, and then I ended up at Beida for a year, Beijing University. Um, and it turned out that China actually was a pretty grim place. Uh, and it didn't take me too, <laughs> too long to, uh, to figure it out. Um, and it was interesting because it was, it really, it, I didn't realize at first, but it was a kind of, in some ways, sort of sensory deprivation. There were no no colors, everybody was wearing, you know, either gray or blue. Not much sound. People didn't talk much, and when they did, they talked very quietly. This was only, mind you, three years after the end of the Cultural Revolution, oh, okay. so people were still very careful about what they said, what could be overheard. Um, and were they careful talking to foreigners? Not just foreigners. Mm-hmm. I mean, even among themselves, because you never knew who was, who was going to inform, you know, and, and so forth. It was still kind of a, kind of a weird, uh, weird place. And of course, billboards everywhere talking about the Gang of Four and uh, you know, wow. the overthrow of the Gang of Four. It's a very different, uh, different world from, uh, from today. Um, and in fact, the biggest culture shock that probably I ever had in my life was midway through that year, so probably January of 1980, I went to, uh, between semesters, I went to Japan, to uh, Tokyo. And Tokyo in 1980 was probably more advanced than the United States. And flying from Beijing to Tokyo, I felt like I was in a time machine and had been shot forward 50 <laughs> years. I mean, it was, it was just mind-blowing uh, experience. That but, vending machines where you could get, like, food out of them. Yeah, and, and just, you know, buses that, that where the, like, when they're one stop away, there's an announcement exactly where they are the and what time they're going to be there. And then, you know, the whole, I mean, in just pre-GPS and everybody terms. lined up very neatly, unlike in China in those <laughs> days when people would literally climb over the barriers to, uh, to, get, ahead of, uh, to get ahead of you. And, and uh, uh, one anecdote about my, my time, I, we, we stayed in those days uh, at Beijing University. They hadn't built any new dorms. Later, they built a new dorm for the foreign students. So we stayed. They, they designated two dorms, one for the men and one for the women, Arsha Wulo and Arsha Liu, building 25, building 26, I still remember. Um, and the room was about as bare as you could get, whitewashed walls, a, a fluorescent bulb sort of dangling uh, across then a, a wooden, little wooden desk and so forth. So my brother and his, uh, his wife, my sister-in-law, had some parents or friends of theirs coming out on a tour to China. So they sent out a care package for me with, you know, instant coffee and peanut butter and all the things that I, think, that I couldn't get. So these people came, they were maybe late 60s, they got the tour guide to bring them out and they come hauling up the stairs to my room with the with the foreign handler uh, in tow, of course. And the woman comes in and she looks around and she says to her husband, he must love his work. 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, uh, your dissertation is on kind of Song Dynasty thought. Yeah, intellectual history. How did, how did that come to be that that's what you focused on? Uh, how did that come to be? Well, um, when I was at Princeton doing my, uh, my graduate work, I, I, Princeton does, does basically medieval and ancient Chinese history. They don't do modern Chinese history, as you, you may know. So, so it had to be something old. Uh, they consider anything after the Ming Dynasty to be journalism. <laughs> Too modern, right? <laughs> um, so I had one professor who was a specialist in Song Dynasty history, and I studied with him, and I, and I liked the Song. I thought it was an interesting period. I had another professor who specialized in intellectual history, and I liked that stuff. Uh, and I had always, even when I was just studying Chinese language and studying in Taiwan, I'd always been interested in Confucianism and Taoism and so forth. Um, so I ended up combining those two areas, and then it was just a matter of zeroing in on a dissertation topic. And I won't go into all the details, but that's that's what I ended up doing. And were you able to, it your your time at Beida, get access to materials, or was it really just talking to this professor that helped? Not materials so uh, so much, but just uh, this this man actually, he was already at that time in his late seventies, and of course had been treated really horribly during the Cultural Revolution, as were most of the Beida professors. Um, but he was back, a uh, wonderful guy. And uh, as I said, we would meet every Friday morning for an hour. And I would, during the week, I would sort of collect all my questions uh, from the text that I was working on and bring them in. And we would discuss them and, and so forth. So he helped guide your research. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you get your PhD, uh, and then you were doing some, we were just chatting a little bit earlier, some other sorts of work with the National Committee and, and uh, uh, trading company. Right. Do you interact at that time with any Chinese officials, or was it um, mostly uh, business people and uh, kind of academics? Uh, well, some of all. When I was at, I, I first worked at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations after uh, getting my PhD. So I was based in New York, and what I was doing mostly was handling delegations that the committee were uh, was bringing into the U.S. So I would travel with them as escort interpreter, as it was called. And um, so through that, I mean, I would be on the road with them typically three weeks or a month wow. uh, and develop good relations. And by that time, I had been certified as an interpreter. My Chinese was quite fluent. And, and I, you know, had having lived in China and maybe the kind of personality I have, the, the Chinese people kind of like me. <laughs> and, and so I would, you know, have good, good ties with them. And um, but generally speaking, in those days, each group would have at least one kind of Communist Party handler, and it wasn't very hard to figure out who that was. And so even with those groups, um, you know, there was a little bit of kind of like what I was saying before about how people were talking carefully in China. You know, it wasn't quite like that, but they, but they were aware that, you know, that they, were, they had to be careful. Uh, and I was lucky that nobody tried to defect on any of my groups, which happened quite often in those days. Mm. Um, and then following that, I went to work in Beijing uh, for a U.S. company called Fuqua, which was a trading company. So I was uh, getting products manufactured in China, consumer products basically for export to the U.S. Um, so there we were working, I was working with, I guess you could call them officials. I mean, they were most, they worked for these state-owned, state-run import-export corporations, mm -hmm. and the factories were kind of under their control. Um, and then sometimes I would work directly with the factories uh, and, you know, all around the country. Um, but again, I had good relations with them. I mean, don't forget in those days, the big 
directive from the central government was to try to earn foreign exchange, earn, earn dollars for the country, and that's what we were helping them do. So, so we were in favor. Uh, so we were, they were sort of disposed, predisposed to, uh, to, to like us and so forth. And then you had to deal with getting the products to a port to get to the U.S. Yeah, and we also had to, it was very complicated because in those days there were a lot of things that China couldn't do yet. So we would have to bring in, for example, packaging from Taiwan. And then in a lot of these things, they were designed to, to come out of the crates and go directly onto shelves in, uh, in stores. And so a lot of times they would have to have like a little hole in the plastic bag to be put on a, on a like a, what do you call that, a hook, mm-hmm. not a hook, but a kind of a rack. And they would have typically an insert, a picture of the product and some happy Americans using the product. And so coordinating all of these things, you know, stuff from Taiwan, stuff from Hong Kong, all being sent to some, some factory in, you know, Heilongjiang province was quite complicated. And then sometimes they would do things that would just boggle your mind. Like they would put the, 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 the grommet, it's called the hole, here at the top. And then they would put the inserts upside down because they had no conception of how, how this was store going. actually yeah, looked like. Store, yeah, how this worked. And so we would, we would discover that we had 60,000 uh, you know, uh, sleeping bags packed in these tight plastic bags with the with the the hole on the top and the insert facing <laughs> backwards or facing down. <laughs> now, when I was um, this is many years later, an English teacher in uh, Wuhan in the early nineties, mm-hmm. I remember Wuhan's a city of I don't know ten million people, mm. fourteen million people. Yeah, uh, I remember going to the one store that was quote unquote self service where right. you could get a shopping cart. Right. Get things off the shelf, right. and then pay for it at the end. Right. All the other state-owned uh, stores, department stores, there was someone at the counter. You would ask and say, "Oh, I'd like to see that right. purple sweater," and then right. they would give you the purple sweater. You'd yeah. say, "Oh, I don't want the purple one. Give me the red one." You'd have to hand it back to yeah. them and they'd give right, you the other right, one. Right. So this concept of like self-shopping, of taking things off the shelf yourself and not paying for it till you leave, just was not so ingrained. But at, in at the that moment. but. Earlier than that, in those stores, you would see things in the window, like in the, in the let's say in the cold, you want you needed a down jacket. You'd see a nice down jacket in the window, so you'd go in and say, "I want to buy that down jacket." And they say, "Oh, we don't have it." And you say, "Well, why? Why do you have it in the window?" I said, "Well, we had it once, you know, or, or we we you know we know how to make it." <laughs> it was the same in restaurants in those days. You go in, they they would have the menu on a chalkboard, and you say, "Okay, this is in Beijing, and you know, in 1980." You say, "Okay, I'd like." You know this one, this one, this one. They say, well, we don't have this one, this one, or that one. And finally, you'd say, well, what do you have? And the answer would be cabbage, because that was all they had for most of in the, the winter year in Beijing. <laughs> and then you'd say, well, why do you put all those other things on the on the blackboard? And they say, well, because our chef knows how to cook those. If we just had the ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, in uh, 1985, you joined the Commerce Department, the Foreign Commercial Service. Right. What was the the impetus and what, what, what made you excited to do that? Uh, well, uh, I mentioned, I think that maybe before we were recording about uh, some of the interpreting I had done when I was finishing up my dissertation and how I, I really found government work to be pretty interesting. Uh, and while I was living in Beijing working for this trading company, I became friends with Sandy Rant, who later became our ambassador. Uh, we were sort of tennis buddies, among other things. And at that time, he was working in the U.S. Embassy as a commercial attaché, kind of a, they had one lawyer in the commercial section. And he kind of suggested to me that I consider joining uh, or trying to join the commercial service. And it seemed very intriguing, and I had to go through a bunch of tests and so forth, kind of equivalent of the foreign service exam. But that was why I decided to do it. 
and uh, it was fun. Uh, and FCS was only set up a couple of years before you joined, right? right. That is, right. I was the second commercial officer in Shanghai, actually. Well, <clears throat> and so then your first posting in that China was, was in, in Shanghai. Shanghai, right? Yeah, in 1985. And that's when it was in the consulate. So were you in the barn in the back, or were you in the big house? So, <laughs> that's it's interesting. I don't know how how well you know that structure, but um, for those listening who don't know, it's a big, beautiful old house that would belong to a. Uh, a Qing Dynasty minister 100 years before. Um, so at, at that time, the whole consulate, we only had, I think, 14 Americans. It was a very small operation. Uh, and everybody was on that site. But we, the commercial section, which consisted of me, uh, one kind of commercial assistant, a secretary, local secretary, and a driver, four people, we were in this kind of converted garage off to the, off to the side. That was, uh, that was our office in, the, in those days. And at that time, um, what was the level of interest from U.S. companies and what was your interaction with Shanghai officials or officials? And you must have had the whole kind of consular district, so Zhejiang, yeah, Jiangsu. Yeah, right. I had the whole consular district, which is those what, three provinces plus Shanghai. Um, so there was already uh, a group of uh, either American business people or Chinese people representing American companies, but pretty small. Um, so we would, for example, we would do a briefing in the, in the consulate, in the main building, that the consul general and I, for the American business community, which we defined, as I just said, either the Americans or the Chinese representatives of American companies. And the whole group could fit in the living room there, probably about 30 or 40 people. Um, but I had a lot of interaction with them because um, I was kind of their main outlet for dealing with problems that would come up and all kinds of crazy problems would come up in those days arbitrary decisions by some Chinese bureaucrat you know suddenly some fees were being imposed for no reason or oh, no you can't hire this person or just whatever um, and they would come to me because they didn't have any other way to address this and I had I had developed good relations with these Chinese officials I was one of the few diplomats in Shanghai in those days who spoke Chinese uh, and uh, so I you know, knew a lot of the guys. The main counterpart that we dealt with in those days was, it sounded like something out of a James Bond novel. It was called SMIRT, uh, the Shanghai Municipal Foreign Economic Relations and Trade Commission. Uh, so I, I knew those people quite well. And you know, some, of these, some of these issues would, would just make your hair stand on end. So I would go see them and try to take these up and, uh, and help the, uh, the Americans. Uh, the American companies. And then we also were getting already a fair number of people coming, uh, American companies coming to sort of feel the water, you know, test the waters and see whether they could do something and if so, how to do it. And so we'd spend a lot of time with them, giving them kind of the lay of the land and giving them advice and so at, forth. At that time, what would mm. you say the level of naivete was? Was it for the folks who ended up coming to Shanghai to talk to you? Was it a lot of people who thought, if I just sell one T-shirt to every Chinese person, I'm going to be rich? Sure. The, <laughs> there was, there's always been a lot of that, and, and it probably still is today, although maybe not so much today. But uh, yeah, there, were, there was certainly a, a lot of that, although if, if, they had, if they spent a few days there, they were pretty quickly disabused of any notion about how easy this was going to be and, and, uh, and so forth. But we would, you know, we would try to start with kind of a general briefing about what's going on and then maybe try to hook them up. There were a few local consultants who were working with foreign companies uh, at that time. And so we would try to maybe introduce them to them. And, and you know, they obviously they needed some local help to, <laughs> to do business in China in those days. So then you did a fair amount of uh, other postings through FCS and mm -hmm. you returned to Shanghai. 
Um, yeah. How many years later? Would that almost, almost almost 20, 20 years. <laughs> I, was, I was there the first time from uh, 1985 to 87. And then I was back from 2004 to 2007. Oh, I want I want to mention one more thing, which actually for your benefit, um, one of my accomplishments in uh, Shanghai the first time around was to help get the AmCham started. Um, we, my memory is that we convened a meeting in my office. It may not have been in my office because my memory is not 100% sharp, but it, I, it, at least in my we'll memory, claim it. Yeah, that's yes, important. In yeah. my memory, we had the meeting in my office, and there were about 10 or 12. Uh, Americans or, or, or sort of reps of big American companies and we decided the time was ripe to do this and so then it, it, it fell to me to go to SMERT, the, uh, the Shanghai government basically, and say we were going to set up an AmCham and the head of SMERT at that time I had gotten to know him quite well he was quite a good guy, he had done a tour of duty in San Francisco for CITCO, this uh, Shanghai Investment, uh, Investment and Trust Corporation it was called uh, so he was, you know, pretty open-minded and pretty sophisticated. And in 1980, early 87, which is when this was, was a relatively open period in China, a couple of years before Tiananmen. Uh, and so he said, yeah, okay, why not? And that was, and that was it. Wow. So then uh-huh. we, we, we had to help uh, get a Chinese sponsor, which became uh, CCPIT, the China Council for Promotion of International Trade. Uh, and then I left Shanghai shortly after, but the rest is history, including well, your employment there years that's later. True. Well, um, I knew you were involved, but not that much. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so 20, 20 years mm. later, you go back. So 2004, I went back. Um, uh, trying to enter the WTO a couple of years before then. Yes. What was the job like and what was the so city the, like in comparison? So I, I described um, my, my working conditions the first time around in this kind of unheated converted garage with uh, three Chinese colleagues. Um, the second time around, as you probably know very well, we were in this fancy office in the Portman, which was a brand new, well, not even brand new then. It was actually started when I was there the first time, but a beautiful new office complex. We had in the commercial section alone, we had 25 people, uh, including uh, five American officers, uh, as well as a couple of locally hired Americans and about 18 or so uh, local staff. So it was just a different world. Uh, the consulate by that time, I said before, we had about, I think, 14 when I was here the first time around. By this time, I don't know exactly. I would guess there were probably about 150 Americans, something like that. And it's so big that it was in several locations. I mean, we were in the Portman. The visa and consular section was in another office building. Uh, the uh, I think... Um, the, 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 the consul general and a few others were still in the original building and then there were, there were a few other offsh- offshoots I think there were five different locations by that time around the city because we had gotten so uh, so big and um, working and of course the foreign diplomatic community had changed was much bigger and, and they were also much more sophisticated than they had been 20 years before as was still very few people spoke Chinese I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> yes although more more did than before uh, and as before, I was covering the three provinces as well as Shanghai, so Zhejiang, uh, Jiangsu, and Anhui. So I traveled around the region, and the, the provincial and municipal local officials in those places had gotten also much more sophisticated than, uh, than 20 years before. Like, it was like night and day, actually. And sophisticated how? How would that manifest itself? Well, because they also, they were now, they had... Uh, most of them, I mean, Anhui probably less, but most of them already had, you know, a fair number of foreign investments and they were used to dealing with foreign businesses and some of the issues that come up and, and so forth. Um, 
and you know they were just more professional and and uh, it was a whole a whole different uh, whole different ball game so at that time uh, how did chinese officials see you do you think i mean you you're a good chinese speaker you had spent on and off 20 right. years in china right, right how do you think that kind of investment early on in your career uh, was seen by Chinese officials that hosted you for these events or that well I think uh, yeah I mean you know I always wonder actually what my file looks like in China because I was there <laughs> in, in, in kind of academics I was there in business I was there in government I was there later as a consultant in all these different roles and and then my Chinese name I have a Chinese name but then sometimes they would use the alliteration and call me Kasofu in, mm-hmm. in Chinese you know so I wondered whether they had somehow thought I was like six people, different right? people or whether they had all of this together. The many disguises yeah. of Eric Kassoff. But, but I think, um, generally speaking, they, they, they liked me and they, they saw me as someone who kind of understood China and understood their situation. They would always say that in Chinese. You've probably heard this many times, right? right? You understand our situation. They would say that all the time. Um, and they would try to make their case on whatever it was based on the fact that I should be able to understand what they were, you know, what their argument was or what their situation was. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I was representing U.S. interests, but I was was able, in fact, to understand what they were saying and, you know, where they were coming from. And I think that was helpful in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Um, you were fortunate in some ways in not being in Beijing, not being in the capital city, right, not being right. kind of tied right. to the politics. Right. Right. Um, how, how do you think, uh, and, and the officials down there, Zhejiang, Jiangsu, and Shanghai, mm. the economies are gangbusters for those 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you see uh, those officials there, and, and what did you take away from their interaction with you what, what how do they see their role and their role of the u.s government but also the role of companies there um in terms of their own economic growth for their province or for mm. their town yeah. or for their county well i mean it's it's interesting because in those in particularly in the in the smaller cities not necessarily you know the capital like not necessarily nanjing but other cities in jiangsu province or in Zhejiang province they were the local officials were fairly independent. I mean, they knew what the general policies were, and they were generally following them. But their big thing was to try to attract business to their town or city, and so they would all they they were very competitive with each other, and they would all give you their pitch any any time you went there. You would have to listen to their pitch about why this was the place where. And it was, you know, sometimes some really obscure thing that they had. You know, they were the the seventeenth leading what producer of whatever, you know. But but you, they all were basically trying to to compete very aggressively for for foreign business and foreign investment. Well, let's move to your time as deputy assistant secretary. Uh, before getting to the specifics of the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade or the other policy issues, mm. could you just talk a second about what the job is like in the field? helping U.S. companies on the ground with market access or taxation or some other problem versus... The deputy assistant secretary. Oh, no. oh, oh what it's like overseas. Yeah, what it's like compared, and then when you come back to Washington, yeah, kind of what yeah. that job is like. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing that's interesting about that is that you get a very different perspective from U.S. companies overseas compared to in Washington. The, the people who are overseas, at least by the by the mid-2000, the mid-aughts, the, the second go-around in Shanghai, they had been on the ground, they were doing business, they were generally making money, 
Uh, and they were generally pretty upbeat, although they would have a lot of specific problems and they would bring those to you. But, you know, beyond the specific problems, they were fairly positive. In Washington, you, you, you would tend to meet with the U.S. reps, the, the sort of Washington reps of these companies, and they were much more negative about China than their, than their counterparts who were out in the field. And it was, it was not just specific things, although they had specific things too, but it was more generally just general frustration about how difficult it was and how you know, we needed to be doing more to level the playing field. So it really was a kind of a, a, different, uh, a different environment than what I had been used to. So on the Joint Commission on Commerce mm. and Trade, mm. how did you see that process? First talk about what it is and then talk yeah. about what, what you saw it as trying to accomplish. So the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, otherwise known as the JCCT, actually had, had a pretty long history. In fact, when I was in Shanghai the first go-around, I was peripherally involved with it. It went, it went back that far. And I got pulled in as an interpreter at one meeting in Beijing when they, the person who was supposed to be doing interpreting couldn't make it at the last minute. Um, but when I was the DAS, I was really one of the kind of central figures in it. Um, and, uh, and we hosted, uh, so, so what is it first? Okay, so it's, it's, it's a, a major, a ministerial level commercial dialogue between the U.S. and China. So originally it was a dialogue between the U.S. Department of Commerce and MOF, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce, which in those days actually was called MOFRT, Ministry of Foreign Economic Relations and Trade, later became MOFCOM. Um, but it was, it was a ministry-to-ministry -ministry dialogue uh, that uh, had a kind of a, uh, a DAS level dialogue and then ultimately ministerial, the Secretary of Commerce and the, uh, and the Chinese minister. Um, subsequently, and so it was, a, it was a dialogue basically intended to address commercial issues that both sides had with each other. Um, subsequently, it got elevated so that the U.S. side, in addition to the Commerce Department secretary, the, the USTR was added as co-chair, and then the Secretary of Agriculture was added in this kind of nebulous non-co-chair role, but he was a participant. Uh, I think it was always a he was a participant as well. And on the Chinese side, instead of the Minister of Commerce, it became a vice premier who was in charge of sort of foreign investment and foreign trade. So, so the, the level of the JCCT was elevated. And <clears throat> by the time I was the, the DAS, it had also evolved to the point where we had a whole series of working groups. We probably had, I don't know, 12 or 14 working groups that met during the course of the year with different Chinese ministries. So. Um, most, the Ministry of Science and Technology, uh, the Ag Ministry, the SFDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, MOFCOM, of course, uh, uh, NDRC, National Defense, what's it called? National, I can't remember what NDRC stands for. Anyway, the Planning, the planning Commission. Commission. Mm -hmm. um, the old G-Way. Huh? Yeah, the old, <laughs> the old G-Way. Um, so, so those meetings, I was the the, the, the U.S. chair for a number of them, other people were, were chair for some of them, and those would meet during the course of the year and try to tee up and hopefully address specific issues for, with each of those ministries. Uh, and this would build to an undersecretary vice minister level meeting in the fall, uh, and then that would basically pave the way for the final ministerial, which typically would take place late in the year. And before the ministerial, we would have a couple of meetings 
at my level, which meant me and my USTR counterpart, which originally was Tim Stratford and then later Claire Reed, meeting with the head of the Americas division of MOFCOM and his team to try to hammer out what we call deliverables. What, what were we going to achieve at the, uh, at the ministerial? Uh, and then we would have the actual ministerial itself, which would be um, fairly scripted. So first it would be a small meeting with the ministers and the vice premier, uh, and a, usually like a plus three on each side, a, a limited number of people. Uh, and then, um, then it would go from there to, a pl to the plenary, where all the, all the people and all the hangers-on were, uh, were included in that meeting. And as I say, it was kind of scripted. I mean, they, they, they all had their, each, you know, the, the, the secretary of the USTR, the ag minister, the ag secretary, they had their talking points as did their Chinese counterparts. But it would always get well beyond that as, you know, we tried to push for, for things that the Chinese wouldn't do and the Chinese raised things that they wanted and so forth. So, and sometimes it would get kind of heated. Um, but that was kind of the process. And, you know, we would typically get something. So one year, for example, the Chinese agreed to, to stop using pirated software on government computers, and then they followed that by agreeing to stop buying pirated software, period. Uh, they also, one year, they, they liberalized all these, these very restrictive regulations on importing medical devices, which was a big issue for us. Uh, one year, they, they made some major changes in tourism, outbound tourism. Um, which actually required us then to work with state on how to deal with this huge rush of uh, applications for visas, but uh, ended up leading to you know enormous numbers of Chinese tourists coming to the U.S. and spending you know billions of dollars in uh, in the United States. So there were some accomplishments coming out of it, um, but uh, you know over the years, especially towards the end and subsequently, you know you start to think, well, given what we accomplished versus how much time and effort and and money we spent on this you know was it really was it really worth it and uh, you know that's that's a that's a complicated question um uh, one a couple of other things on the jcct uh, and then you may have some follow-up questions but we, we we had the uh the 25th anniversary of the jcct during my tenure and so we decided to host it at the nixon library in california and the Chinese loved it. There, there are, among other things, there are all kinds of uh, exhibits there about, the, about Nixon's trip to China. And there's a statue, I think, of Nixon and Mao and Zhou Enlai. And all the Chinese senior officials went running over there to get pictures taken in front of that. Uh, uh, sorry, that who statue. was the vice premier who was the that person was, at the time? Uh, was it Wee? I think it was Wee. Oh. And then the, the infamous Madame Ma was the senior vice minister. They, they went running there to, uh, to have their pictures taken. <laughs> <laughs> but then that, one other thing is that the, the JCCT, I mean, as, I, I, I don't know if I've quite captured how complicated and time-consuming it was, but it got even more so because of the SED, which later became the SNDD, which I'll explain, but, but the Strategic Economic Dialogue, which started, I think, in 2007, I believe, um, under the leadership of uh, Hank Paulson, who, who made it a condition of his accepting the position of Treasury Secretary to be the top dog on China. And so that so a lot of our issues got folded into the SED, and we had to work on both dialogues. Uh, and, in, and the SED actually met twice a year, so it was, it was basically nonstop all year round. Uh, and then... Um, at the beginning of the Obama administration, and Jeff Bader may have talked about this, there was a lot of discussion about whether we should 
elevate the, the dialogue and maybe the vice president should head up some kind of high-level uh, uh, U.S.-China dialogue. And in the end, the decision was made, instead of doing that, to change the SED to the SNED and add the Secretary of State as a co-chair. So it became Hillary Clinton and Tim Geithner. Um, and only once a year, thankfully. But, but you know, that, that meant we, we uh, in, uh, in commerce, basically had to work on both of these dialogues. And a lot of overlap, although there was some distinction. I mean, the, the SED and then later the SNED focused more on financial issues, capital markets, insurance, and so forth. And then on the, the, the strategic side, the state side, geopolitics and climate change and things like that. And ours was more focused on commercial issues. So there was some distinction, but, but certainly became more complicated when, the, when they started that uh, so you hinted at some of the ways that you interacted with Chinese officials. Uh, there were these working groups, and you would meet at your level with the director general level person at the right. Ministry of Commerce. Right. What were those conversations like? I mean, how would you see most effective movement in whatever issue X is that, that an industry would bring to you? What did you find kind of worked in, in, the, in those interactions? I mean, what, what, we, we, what I always tried to do was you know, sort of going back to your earlier question about, you know, how does the fact that I spent so many years working on China and studied about China, how did that, how did that affect what I did or how did that help me? I would try to put frame some of these things because we, we had a lot of demands. The Chinese had their issues as well. You know, they wanted relaxation of export controls. They wanted certain agricultural products that we were blocking for health reasons to be allowed. They needed certain licenses for banks and so forth. But we had way more issues than they, they did, obviously. So I would try to frame these issues to the extent possible in a way that would be at least what I thought in China's interest to do what we wanted to do. I would, I would try to kind of put myself in their shoes and, and say, you know, instead of saying you, you have to do this and try to pressure them, which didn't work, if I were in their shoes, how would I see this and what would make this more appealing to me to consider? And, you know, sometimes that worked, usually not, but that's what I usually tried to uh, tried to do. Yeah, I mean, you were there at an interesting time, end of the Bush administration, beginning of the Obama administration, mm -hmm. um, a time when China had joined the WTO seven, eight years earlier, right. Right. and in some ways, Mofcom hit its height during the WTO negotiations and their ability to force things right. in the Chinese right. system kind of decreased right. after right. that. Right. Um, I wonder, you were there during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Oh, man. <laughs> what was that like? Did you get a sense from the Chinese um, that they had much less patience for what the US had to say because to, to of the financial it, crisis? To put it mildly. Um, yeah, it's interesting because we, we were actually having a JCCT ministerial when the uh, Lehman Brothers collapse happened. I think it was Lehman Brothers. Uh, I remember, um, I think it was uh, Carlos Gutierrez was my boss and Sue Schwab was the uh, USTR. And there was a break and we saw the news and, and we saw this. It's like, oh my God. Now, it didn't, it, and at that meeting, it hadn't yet become a big deal and it was really just a start. But... Uh, at the at the end of 2008, which was the full blown crisis, um, after the the last SED under Bush and under Hank Paulson's leadership would was scheduled for Beijing. As remember, in those days it was twice a year. It's once in Washington, once in Beijing. Was scheduled for Beijing in December of 2008, which was after the election. 
So the Republicans lost the election, so they were lame ducks, and a new team, the Obama team, was going to be coming in a month later. So, so, so first you have a lame duck administration that basically is one foot out the door, and you have a financial crisis where it's not clear whether the economy is going to survive or not, and it really was like that. Um, I was in a meeting with, in Paulson's office when George Bush actually came in to discuss this, but that's, that's another story. Uh, and uh, the person who was the Treasury Secretary was deeply involved in U.S. capital markets for his whole career. Yes, exactly. And so the exactly. Chinese would have a view on kind of that, yeah. that aspect of American so, leadership. Yes. Yeah, so, so the bottom line was there was this whole discussion about whether we should go forward with that last SED, uh, given all of this uh, the fact that they were lame ducks and the fact that the economy was in full meltdown. And, um, and Bush basically made the decision and told Paulson, you guys should go ahead. Now, my former boss, Carlos Gutierrez, in the end did not go because he had been charged with bailing out the auto industry, or, or not bailing out, saving the auto industry. Um, so that was an excuse. I mean, everybody was looking for an excuse not to do it. Uh, so he didn't go. But I went, our deputy secretary went in Gutierrez's place, uh, and I went, and Paulson went, and the rest of, most of the other cabinet secretaries went, I believe. But basically, we had to sit there and listen to Wang Qishan, who was the vice premier now, uh, lecture us for the entire meeting about how, you know, you Americans have been telling us for all this time about how we have to open up our capital markets and do all these things and look what you've done. You've basically destroyed the world economy and you know, you were our once our teachers and you know, and on and on and on. And and Paulson and the rest of us had to just sort of sit there and take it because you know, what could you say? <laughs> uh, you mentioned Carlos Gutierrez. Uh, you then worked for Gary Locke, who yes, was yes. the Commerce Secretary at the beginning of the Obama administration first uh, Chinese-American governor in the United States, mm. first Chinese-American commerce secretary, right, right. Uh, one who had kind of incredible access in some ways mm. as a governor right. uh, when he was governor. What was it like, that shift? I mean, it's in the middle of this financial crisis, right. and so it's complicated. It's an understatement. But um, what was it like to work with him on China-related things when he came into office? By the time he came in, he wasn't actually the first choice, if you remember. I think... Um, um, what's uh, uh, I'm throwing a blank. The governor of New Mexico, former governor of New Mexico, um, Bill um, Bill, Richardson. Bill Richardson was was supposed to be secretary, and then I think there was another one, and then it was Gary Locke because the other two didn't work out. Um, so it took a while for him to to be confirmed and to come in. And by the time he came in, the the financial situation had stabilized, although in a you know we were in a much worse state than we had been. But it wasn't no longer there was no longer a question of whether the economy would melt down or not. Anything else on the JCT? I have a kind of broader question, but I also don't want to leave out if there's some well, other. Well, just in terms of you know sort of kind of looking back. Yeah, at, how do you, you know? Was it worth it? I mean, one one thing that that I do have to say is that that um, for the U.S. business community, it was it was important because. It was the, the, the primary channel for them to get their, their issues aired and, and then raised at a high level. Um, I mean, when I was in Washington, they would, business people would come in to me all the time with their issues, and then I would raise them when I went out to China, which I did about every four or five weeks in those days. But the JCCT was a much more formal mechanism for them to have their issues heard. And we had, so during the course of the year, I talked about all these working group meetings and all this stuff that we would do. We would also have regular meetings with the business community in the states and and ask them to bring their issues and prioritize their issues and so on and try to figure out which ones we were going to try to put on the agenda with the uh, with the Chinese. So 
you know, in sort of looking at whether this doing this for all these years with all this all this money we spent and all the man hours and so forth, was it worth it? I think if you asked the business community, they would say, yeah, even though the results were, you know, minimal, it was still worth it because it was at least a mechanism that they could have to get their issues uh, uh, brought up to, to. And I think one of the benefits that you had mentioned earlier mm-hmm. was it got you not just to the Ministry of Commerce, which were the kind of gatekeepers right. in a lot of ways, right. but also to these other regulatory yeah. agencies. Well, I, I would meet with them on my trips to China because a lot of the issues that companies would raise with me were not only MOFCOM issues, but, you know, SFDA or Ministry of Environment or whatever. So I would meet with those people. But yes, one of the other benefits of the JCCT and the SED or SNDD was the relationships that that people made with their counterparts. I mean, I was traveling there all the time, so maybe not so much for me, but for a lot of these secretaries and and others, you know, they were meeting counterparts and developing relationships which they wouldn't have had otherwise. So that was another benefit of these dialogues. Yeah, and I think that's when Hank Paulson came in, as you said, with this requirement that he would be the senior person dealing with China. He he saw the kind of counterpart to counterpart. Right. Matching up right. is an important part of that, right. so that we can right. figure out what was going on in the other country. But having said all of that, if you want my kind of bottom line, you know, I'm not sure I, these dialogues don't exist anymore, uh, which may or may not be a good thing. I mean, I think it it it, it probably would have been good in at the beginning of the Obama administration if they had tried to have a high level kind of Joe Biden led discussion and then more specific sort of ministry to ministry talks and you know I mean I can't imagine who in this administration would lead it on the US side but that sort of thing might be might be a, a way to go in the in the future like one of the challenges that the world is grappling with and where China is today uh, all these years 17 18 years after WTO session is it's kind of somewhere in between a planned and a market economy right, and right. the WTO wasn't really set right. up to deal with that kind right. of economy. Right. Um, it's a kind of regulatory state and a kind of state-led investment right. economy. Um, you had experience working in Japan and, mm. and, uh, and other, other kind of Asian economies. How would you compare, if you yeah. can, the way yeah. that the regulatory state, which sometimes in Japan as well and Korea, would kind of direct investment right. and right. Uh, would pick winners and losers, yeah. how, how do those economies compare to China? And how, what's, what was your experience like or your assessment? Yeah, of those I, I, I worked a lot with Japan and, I, and I, I had two assignments in Japan. I lived there for eight years and then I also worked on it when I was at DAS. I didn't work so much with Korea, but, but I can talk pretty uh, fluently about Japan. Um, and we, we've had a lot of dialogues with Japan as well, especially in the, in the early days. We had something called the MOS Talks, Market oriented sector specific I think it stood for Um, and those carried on I mean they were there in the early 90s when I was back in Japan the second go around 10 years later they were still going on when I was the DAS which means from 2007 on I chaired one of the MOS talks the MedFarm talk so that's like 20 years after it uh, it started so that had it had its own sort of uh, life cycle um, and in, in the early days, we had uh, a higher level dialogue called the SII. You may be familiar with that, Stru- Structural Impediments Initiative, um, which was very interesting. It was, it was not ministerial. I think it was um, the deputy USTR or, or 
I believe the deputy OSTR was the, the chair. Or the assistant OSTR? No, it was a deputy, deputy level. It was like vice ministerial on the, on uh -huh. the Japanese side. And it was several ministries. So the, com the Undersecretary of Commerce and Undersecretary, I think Undersecretary of State and a few others who were involved. But it wasn't minister to minister. But the idea there was to try to get at what we consider to be structural issues preventing more U.S. exports to Japan. So, for example, we tried to pressure the Japanese to keep their ATMs open beyond banking hours so that people could ac get access to cash and buy more U.S. products. We did these bizarre pricing surveys to try to demonstrate that prices of U.S. products in Japan were artificially high and that therefore they weren't being uh, uh, purchased as much by Japanese consumers as they should. Um, but this was, you know, sort of also went on for a number of, uh, a number of years. And, and I have to say, in those days, which means probably through the, certainly through the mid-90s, Japan was more closed actually than China. Um, and, and most of our focus, the U.S. government focus, was on Japan. But little by little, the Japanese economy, really from that time, from the early 90s, was started to stagnate, and China was just go, growing 10% a year. And so before too long, China completely overshadowed Japan in every way, the size of the economy, the size of the trade deficit, the, the, the volume of trade complaints and, and problems and so forth. So Japan opened up a lot, but people didn't care as much anymore, you know, as, uh, as in the early days. But Japan, in the early days, there was an expression, you were inside the castle or outside the castle, and they, they had very sophisticated ways of keeping new entrants out. And that doesn't only mean foreigners, that meant new Japanese companies as well. It really was kind of a, an insider's game. Uh, and so there, I, I was talking about uh, the, the difference between sort of U.S.-based business people and local-based business people. The, the contrast was the sharpest in Japan. People who were in the in, in Japan, the AMCHAM was called the ACCJ, American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. They were pretty cool about Japan and about all these regulatory restrictions because they were inside the castle uh, and they didn't care that other others couldn't get in whereas the people in the states were saying that you know it's impossible to do business in Japan you've got to do something so uh, but but it really was more closed in 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 more subtle and non mostly non-regulatory ways uh, than uh, than China actually mm -hmm. in terms of barriers to entry and yeah. market yeah. access yeah yeah uh, Putting on your kind of historian's hat, um, you talked a little bit about Song Dynasty, kind of openness, closeness. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, in some ways, where we are in China today is going kind of less open and kind of more closed. Mm. Uh, and so I guess I would just say, putting on a historian's hat, kind of where do you see where China is in this kind of arc of openness to closeness? Mm. I mean, you had mentioned the 80s was a time right. of a fair amount of political openness, relatively right, speaking, right, right. as well as interest in kind of learning and having farmers right, participate. Right. Where do you kind of see that arc and where do you see things going forward? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think right now the trend is is not good. It's hard to be optimistic in the, in the short term. And that's even leaving aside the, the tension between the U.S. and China and what's going on at the moment. Um, but just on China itself, I mean, I think... Um, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party started getting very worried about its its future prospects, let us say, five or six years ago. Um, they had two, um, two general secretaries who were relatively 
week and, and um, people started basically questioning why do we need the Communist Party? I mean, we're now a modern country and we, you know. So I think Xi Jinping has come in and basically one of his big motivations has been to try to reassert the power and the primacy of the of the Chinese Communist Party. And so we see all the different kinds of repression and, and, and things that he's been doing uh, since he's been in office. Um, and so, you know, that sort of begs the question, is this does this mean that, that he and the Chinese Communist Party are stronger or weaker? I mean, is this a sign of strength and, and, or weakness? And to me, it's, it's a sign of strength in the short term. The fact that he can do all of this means that he's very strong. But it also, I think, longer term, it's a sign of weakness. I think they're doing this because they're, they're scared of, of what, what might happen if they, uh, if they don't do this. Um, and in terms of you know, the, their relationship with the world, it's very complicated. I mean, there was, uh, as, as you know well, you know, Bob Zellick said many years ago, we have to make China a responsible stakeholder and pull China into all these international institutions and make sure that they have these strong vested interests in maintaining stability and being a good, good citizen and so forth. Um, and, you know, they are now in all of these institutions and even in some that they've developed themselves, right? The, the New Asia uh, Infrastructure Bank and... And then, of course, they've got the Belt and Road Initiative. And so they're, they're, they've gone beyond even these international institutions like WTO and, and so on and, and doing some of their own. Um, and they also are, you know, the world's biggest trading nation. They need international markets. At the same time, they, they are taking stronger measures, I would say, to, to foster domestic champions and you know particularly in the they have this made in china 2025 they're trying to really become world leaders in all these key high technology industries um and that i think is one of the subjects that's being fought out between the u.s and china right now but um you know they they for quite some time have been basically have had had that in mind i mean they've they've opened up to foreign investment and foreign technology but with the goal of developing ultimately Chinese technology and Chinese companies, and then they won't need the foreign companies anymore. Um, so it's kind of a, from their side too, I think it's a delicate balance. They need foreign markets and access to foreign markets, but at the same time, they want to have, you know, world-class Chinese competitors in all these, in all these key industries. Uh, so, you know, how all of this plays out is, uh, is it's, it's, it's really hard to predict right now. I've just got to ask one final question as someone mm. who was at Beida and mm. w- as you said when Beijing kind of first opened up mm. to foreigners mm. did you ever think you know 20, 30, 35 years later the Beijing of today would, would, would be where, where it is that is the the number of Starbucks on each corner or the just the, the connectivity of, of the place uh, compared to the grayness or blueness of the of the late 70s, early 80s? Inconceivable. I mean, I, I think anyone who, who was there at that time who, who said they could have seen that coming would not be telling you the entire <laughs> truth. I just, I mean, it, the China of those days compared to the China of today is like, two entirely different worlds i mean it's it's just uh it's astonishing actually what's uh, what's happened there was by the way you may have seen this in, in shanghai at the planning uh museum they had an exhibit of photographs 
taken in 1985, and then 20 years later by the son of the same photographer. Yeah, I have that book, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. same spots. Yeah. And, it, and I was living in Shanghai during both of those periods. And it's so interesting to see how those all those places have changed. And you could probably do the same thing now and, and go back right. to those another, places. Right, another 10 years another, later. Another, yeah. uh, but I mean, the changes are just, uh, are just mind-boggling. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I... I, I when I was working in, in uh, Fuqua, the trading company, in 1983, in those days, in order to hire Chinese employees, you had to hire through uh, uh, FESCO, it was called, the Friendship Employment Corporation. Oh, I thought it was foreign. Maybe foreign, yeah, foreign. Yeah. Anyway, you had foreign to basically... Foreign yeah, services. You had to hire through them. Mm-hmm. And I think we paid them, and then they paid the employee right, right. a pittance. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we had this guy who, who came to work for us, a very sweet young guy, uh, and he was probably making, I don't know, 100 yuan a month or some, something. I mean, nothing. Um, many years later, I, I reconnected with him uh, when I was in Beijing. I can't remember. Maybe when I was at DAS. I can't remember. But many years later. And uh, he was all excited that I was coming. So he, he came and he picked me up in the airport in his car, which was a really nice car. He took me out to his apartment that he owned. Uh, and he and his wife and his daughter took me to dinner at a nice restaurant wow. near their near their home. And this was a guy who was making, you know, maybe maybe twenty bucks a month in the, in, in 1983. So and he was able to show off yeah. how, how yeah. far he'd come. Yeah. Well, Ira Kassoff, so great to talk to you. Thanks very much for sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Ira Kassoff speaking with me from Los Angeles. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.